today's passage is like the distilled wisdom of Peter, who, if you remember, was one of the key players in the first church, the distilled wisdom of Peter right towards the end of his life. And as we're going to find out, it's absolutely crammed full of crucially important lessons for us today. Anyone interested to know what it'd have to say to us? Yes. Good answer, because that's what we're going to be looking at for the next half an hour. If you want to follow along, we're going to be in 1 Peter and chapter 4. Uh, while you're finding it, just to say, uh, I think when we read passages like the one we're going to be camping out in for the rest of our time this morning, I think so often we can depersonalize it and just sort of examine it like a text to analyze for the truth that it contains. <laughs> But I want us to view these verses today against the backdrop of Peter's whole life. If you're familiar with anything of his story, you'll know he's experienced a tremendous amount. It's pretty amazing when you think about it. He started off as a humble fisherman. Uh, He's seen Jesus' ministry up close and personal. He's uh, experienced heartbreaking failure in his relationship with God. He's wrestled with some pretty substantial doubts. Uh, He's witnessed the resurrection. Jesus has restored him. Uh, He was there on the day of Pentecost. In fact, not just there, but he was preaching and saw thousands come to follow Jesus uh, in a day. Uh, He's seen the gospel go out to the very ends of the earth. Uh, And now he's coming to the end of his life. And really, I want to frame this message as Peter's dying call to us to resolve to follow Jesus no matter what. Now, just to tip you off, uh, because it's Christmas, I am feeling in slightly more generous mood than normal. Uh, And because New Year is just round the corner uh, and my pastoral heart is shining through and I want to serve you uh, as best I can. Uh, And so uh, there are not the normal three points today. There are seven um, and uh, and not merely points. Uh, Think of them as resolutions. So seven resolutions that, and don't blame me, it's Peter, that Peter encourages us to make. Uh, just to explain where we're going with this, the first three of them uh, are for us to consider and apply individually, and then the remaining four of them are for us to try and work out together as a church. So here we go. If we could get Peter here this morning and ask him what he would want to pass on to us, I think this is what he would want to say. Number one, resolve to pay the price. That's the first resolution, resolve to pay the price. Verse one of 1 Peter 4. So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. You know, I think it's vital for us to pay really close attention to what Peter says here, because let's be honest, it is getting harder and harder, isn't it, to follow Jesus. For the most part, I think what we have to deal with in our culture is more like soft resistance. Like, you're a Christian, Really? Now we put you down as a bigot. Uh, we, we face those kind of slightly barbed comments all the time, don't we? But right now, more and more of us are beginning to face much harder opposition. Like some of us in this room probably won't get the jobs we want because 
HR have discovered our online comments about being a Christian and will disqualify us from the whole process. It's not inconceivable that we'll end up losing where we meet, not just because of heating problems, but because we insist on honouring what the Bible says. And although we're not yet at the point of being imprisoned for our faith, I think the way things are going, give it another decade or two, and this will almost certainly happen. I'm not saying this to scare you. I don't think we've got to be frightened of this. But this is happening. And I think we simply have to resolve ahead of time that we're not going to cave in and give up when it hits us. As Peter says here, we need to arm ourselves with the same attitude that Jesus had. I think there's something pretty profound here that I don't want us to miss. You see, if I was to ask you what the armour of God is, uh, I'm guessing you're going to think of stuff like the sword of the spirit and the breastplate of righteousness, the, the shield of faith and stuff like that. But how many of you think of suffering as a weapon with which to glorify God? Like, you, you can attack me all you want, but because I know that God is with me, I can take it. You know what? That's how the first church went on and conquered the world. When their enemies attacked them, they just insisted on loving them back. If anything, it merely acted to strengthen their faith. Recently, came across this really interesting article that a guy called David French wrote on the back of several high-profile Christians publicly renouncing their faith. He says this, In my travels around the country, one thing has become crystal clear to me. Christians are not prepared for the social consequences of the profound cultural shifts, especially in more secular parts of the nation. That They're afraid to say what they believe, not because they face the kind of persecution that Christians face overseas right now, but because they're simply not prepared for any meaningful adverse consequences in their careers or with their peers. C.S. Lewis famously said that courage is the form of every virtue at its testing point. In practical application, this means that no person truly knows if they possess any virtue until it is tested. So, do you think you're loving? Well, you'll know you truly love another person only when loving that person is hard. Do you think you're truthful? You'll know only when telling the truth hurts. Soldiers are familiar with this phenomenon. Most men who travel to the battlefield believe themselves to be brave, but they know they're brave only if they do their duty when their life is on the line. So are you faithful? Let's admit that you don't know until that faith is truly tested, either in dramatic moments of crisis or in the slow, steady build-up of worldly pressure and secular scorn. As the worldly pressure and secular scorn continue to mount, expect to see more friends and neighbours retreat and conform. The church has its faults, yes, but the blame will lie less with the church that failed to instruct than with a person who didn't ultimately have the courage to believe. So first things first, you've got to understand you will be misunderstood you will be mistreated as a Christian. 
And I'd humbly suggest that is actually a good thing if it tests your faith and shows it to be real. But that's only ever going to happen if you courageously resolve ahead of time to pay the price. That's the first resolution. Here's the second one. Resolve not to squander your life. Resolve not to squander your life. Verse three, you've had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy, their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties, and their terrible worship of idols. You know what? As Peter lists those different negative behaviors, I'm reading it and, and I'm feeling pretty encouraged. Wouldn't know why? It's because it says that there are people that used to live like this that Jesus has rescued and brought into the church. So if you are here today and you've ever wrestled with lust or this time of year overeating or drunkenness or wild parties or terrible idolatry or any other kind of immorality and you think you could never be free of this stuff, or that God could never love you or use you because of this stuff. Or perhaps you struggle with feelings of guilt and condemnation and shame. I think the message here is you really don't have to. I mean, the early church was full of people who had committed all of those sins. But remember how throughout this letter, Peter keeps coming back and saying, you are holy. You are special. You are chosen. You are the people of God. That right there is the stunning, stunning, stunning power of grace to reach us and welcome us and embrace us and change us. But that being said, Peter then goes on to say, once this has happened, whatever you do, do not go back. Don't go back. You, you, you've spent enough time in the past living like this. And then he lists these things he doesn't want us to go back to. Things like immorality, which is essentially an attitude of the heart that says, I'm just not going to bother restraining myself or trying not to anymore. And things like lust, which is like this conscious turning over of the heart to chase after whatever it wants. Things like feasting and drunkenness and wild parties. I don't know about you, but maybe it's just the way my mind works, but I find it interesting that Peter frames all of these other sins uh, around this term terrible idol worship. You see, I think when we think of this stuff like lust and getting drunk and wild parties, we, we, we perhaps would be willing in this context to accept that they are probably sinful. But Peter here seems to be saying that it actually goes way deeper than that. He says, you are not merely doing what you want, you are actually a slave to an idol. Uh, just like we have these liturgies and spiritual disciplines and practices that we participate in, much as we are this morning, to shape us hopefully more and more into the image of Jesus, these simple behaviours listed in this passage aren't just neutral, they're actually like liturgies to idols that deform us 
out of the image of Christ. And Peter's saying, because your behavior is so important in your spiritual formation and development, and because this is the stuff you used to do, and, and, and you, you've come to your senses, you, you, you know what an empty way of life it was, Peter would say, I'm urging you, you, you've spent enough time in the past doing this, it's time now for you to be holy. So won't you resolve not to squander your life any longer? That's the second thing. Here's the third one. Resolve to prepare for eternity. Verse 4. Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do. And so they slander you. Now let's be honest. Show of hands. How many of you love having abuse heaped on you? None of us do. Which is why I think we need to be prepared for it so that we're not thrown or surprised when it comes. And we also need to remember that we're not experiencing anything that Jesus himself didn't experience. Let me just unpack that a bit. I believe part of the call to be misunderstood and slandered and to suffer for our faith is in the midst of it to know more and more of the joy of participating in deeper fellowship with Jesus. I think that's possible as we experience pain and suffering and difficulty. There is a way in the midst of it for us to find Jesus even more. Think about it. Can we agree, I think we're on reasonable safe ground here, but can we agree that Jesus is the greatest man who ever lived? I mean, Nat, you're, you're on the, the, the page there, but uh, can, can we agree on that? Can we agree on that? I mean, he, he loved like nobody loved. He, he told the truth with such conviction and compassion. He knew such intimacy with the Father. He, he moved in such supernatural power. And yet, despite all of that, the world still crucified him. So why do you think that if you're loving, and if you have a heart for God, and if you have a passion for truth, that effectively the same kind of fate won't befall you? Listen, as we've already seen, we are alive at a time where we have to consciously, almost daily consider whether we are willing to take up our cross and follow Jesus which I think means that a big part of the invitation to follow Jesus is this invitation to join him in his suffering. Don't hear me wrong. Uh, It's not that we're masochists, like kind of bring on more pain. I love it. It's not that. It's just that we live in an increasingly secular culture that hates what we believe and will oppose us. But through it all, it is okay. Jesus is on the throne Jesus is still building the church. The church around the world is thriving right now. And whatever we face, his grace will be enough for us if we refuse to shrink back. Honestly, trust me, there are worse things than losing some friends or missing out on your dream job. Is compromising your soul. It's standing before God at the end of time giving an account for exchanging relationship with him for a moment of pleasure, for a bit of acceptance in the eyes of the world, for putting our own desires above his. Which is the point that 
Peter goes on to make in verse 5 here. He says, but remember that they, they being your so-called friends who slander you for not living as they live, remember that they will have to face God who stands ready to judge everyone, both the living and the dead. That, that is why the good news was preached to those who are now dead. So although they were destined to die like all people, they now live forever with God in the spirit. You know, I, I don't think we consider this stuff anywhere near enough. There is a day of judgment coming. You, you will have to give an account for your life. And so live in light of that day. Let that day shape your decisions in the here and now. Now, of course, for those of us who are in Christ, we're not going to be judged for salvation. That, that, that's secure. But I think we will still have to give an account. It's like a judgment will determine the rewards that will carry into eternity. And yet so many of us live as though that's irrelevant. We very much live for the now. And Peter would say to us, please, I'm begging you, don't squander your life. Prepare for eternity. Live every day as though you'll have to sit down with Jesus at the end of it all and talk through what you've done with it. Now, in light of all of this, Peter then goes on to urge us to focus on building things that will last. Not things that are trivial, that will not be here tomorrow, but things that will last. Things of permanence. And he gives us four very practical ways that we can do this together as a church. So we're about to segue from kind of the individual application now to how we work this out together. So here's the fourth resolution. Resolve to pray earnestly. And just to say, these are going to come quick fire now. So get ready for a barrage, the final four points. Fourthly, resolve to pray earnestly. Verse seven, the end of the world is coming soon. Therefore, be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. Now, I'm guessing here, but I reckon probably the, the main reason why Peter's so concerned that we don't miss out on the opportunity to pray is linked to one of the deepest moments of shame in his own life. Remember the story, Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus invited just a handful of his closest friends to come with him. And he says to them in, in his moment of greatest crisis and need, I want you to watch and pray with me. And what does Peter do? He falls asleep, doesn't he? Jesus has to come and wake him up, but it's too late. The guards come and arrest Jesus. Peter is left feeling deep regret, which I think probably explains why Peter is at pains to say that I don't want you sleeping through what God is doing in your generation. You see, in every generation, Jesus calls people to partner with him in prayer to bring about his purposes here on earth. You know, right now, Jesus is scouring this room. He, he's looking for people that he can share more of his heart with, people he can shape history through, people who realize that his presence is the primary thing, the first thing, and they prioritize their whole lives around that. And so I want to strongly encourage you to prioritize gathering to pray together. In the words of a guy called David Fritch, do not despise your small prayer gatherings. He goes on to say, every major revival has its origins with a small band of intercessors faithfully crying out. Small gatherings precede big breakthroughs. 
When we gather to worship and pray, regardless of size, we convene the very court of heaven on earth. Our prayer gatherings are the most important and powerful gatherings in our city. Listen, I firmly believe that the prayer meeting is where the fate and destiny of our city is decided. Of all the things that we could be known for as a church, I want us to be known as a praying church. Don't know about you, I don't want us to fall asleep in our generation. And so personally, I'm calling you, and I think if Peter was here, he would be exhorting you to resolve to build the church through prayer. That's the fourth thing. Here's the fifth thing. How are you doing? You keeping up with this? Yeah. So I'm trying to serve you here. I'm trying to give you as much as I can, as many gifts before Christmas as possible. Here's the fifth one. Resolve to love each other deeply. Verse eight, most important of all. So all the other stuff, pretty important. But if you've kind of dipped out, this is the point to dip back in. This is the most important thing of all, according to Peter. Continue to show deep love for each other. For love covers a multitude of sins. Now this word deep, it it kind of conveys the image of an athlete sprinting towards the line, fully extended out, doing everything within their power to win. And in the same way that an athlete reaches and stretches with everything they have within them for the line, I think that's the way that our love is to be for one another. Now, this can be hard, can't it? Because let's be honest, people at times have a tendency to be annoying and busy and, dare I say, ever so slightly self-absorbed and sometimes emotionally needy. They, They can drain our energy, our resources, our me time. But if we're not stretching... If it's not slightly painful for us at times, it's not New Testament love. At the end of the day, I think all of us need people in our lives who say, I won't let you do that because I love you. I'm going to say the hard thing to you because I love you so much. But through it all, I'm staying fiercely loyal to you because at the end of the day, I love you which is easier said than done because we live in a society, don't we, of contracts, not covenants. We're always on the lookout for the best deal with the least commitment. I think what we need most is this deep, fundamental love for one another. Here's why. All these other negative practices that Peter lists here in this passage If you look at them and think about them, they're pretty much all centred on the self, aren't they? Things like immorality and lust, feasting, drunkenness, wild parties. All of those sorts of things are about you. But love isn't so much about you as about others. The way of the world is extracting for self-pleasure. The church is built as we give ourselves on behalf of others. So let's resolve, most importantly of all, to love each other deeply. Here's the sixth thing. Resolve to be cheerful in your hospitality. Verse 9. Cheerfully, or as some versions put it, without grumbling, 
Share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. And do you want to know why? Peter would have to tell us to do this cheerfully and without grumbling. I think it's probably because the tendency, in some of us at least, is to grumble and moan and not be cheerful when we do this. So, I mean, Christmas is coming up, our homes are about to be invaded, or you're about to invade someone else's home who may now be grumbling about you coming, or vice versa. There's a warning here. Offer hospitality cheerfully and without grumbling and without moaning. Now, hospitality in the Greek, now I'm not the Greek scholar that Ed is here, so he'll keep me honest on in this. Uh, uh, learned people, uh, I've read their books, uh, and I've chatted with Ed every now and again. Uh, I think I'm right in saying hospitality in the Greek literally means love of the stranger. Uh, Ed, are you with me on that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, results. Uh, now, uh, take it from me. Uh, <laughs> hospitality in the Greek literally means love of the stranger. Show of hands. How, how many of you... Uh, just love strangers. You just willingly invite them into your home, left, right, and center. Let them stay as long as they want, eating all of your food, no questions asked. Now, there may be some people in the room who are like that. Anyone like that? Oh, what a lot we have here. The, the other sites, at least some people put their hands up. This wasn't a trick question. Some people are motivated like that, but a lot of us aren't, which is why Peter says we need to do it without grumbling and do it cheerfully. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll know that according to the Mosaic law, Jews were actually required by God to extend hospitality to people who were strangers. In fact, Jesus, if you remember, took this a step further. He said to people, if you provide food, clothing, shelter to others, you're actually doing it to me. And in the book of Hebrews, we're told not to neglect showing hospitality to strangers because some of you, without knowing, have actually entertained angels. Like you have facilitated supernatural encounters and you are not even aware of it. Now, I know we can fear opening our home to others. But scripture always portrays the welcoming of another as an important and possible encounter with the divine. Put like that, why wouldn't we cheerfully offer hospitality to others? To quote Henri Nouwen, our society seems to be increasingly full of fearful, defensive, aggressive people anxiously clinging to their property and inclined to look at their surrounding world with suspicion, always expecting an enemy to suddenly appear, intrude and do harm. But still, this is our vocation to convert the enemy into a guest and to create the fear the free and fearless space where brotherhood and sisterhood can be formed and fully experienced. So let's resolve to show hospitality to others, especially complete strangers. And then seventhly, well done, you're still here. Seventhly, resolve to use your gifts for God's glory. Verse 10. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Do you have the gift of speaking? 
then speak as though God himself was speaking through you. To have the gift of helping others. Do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, the way God builds the church is by freely distributing gifts through the Holy Spirit to every single one of us as he, in his wisdom, decides to give them. So, among other things, this means that if you kind of look at your own life and the way that you're made, and in all honesty, you don't particularly like yourself, you're effectively saying to God, God, I don't like how you have gifted me. And if you find yourself critical about others because they do things differently to you, be careful that you're not criticizing the way that God has sovereignly designed them. Listen, God has made us in such a way that nobody has all of the gifts. I think we are intentionally designed with weakness so that we are forced to rely on one another. And if we're all willing to go along with God's genius plan here and all pitch up and use the gifts he's given us, then over time the church will be built stronger and will display more and more and more of the beauty of God. Also, just to say, if we resolve to do this, to to come and use our gifts, I think there's a massive encouragement for us hidden away in these verses We're assured here that God himself will supply us with all the strength and energy we need to use the gifts that he's given us. You know, number one reason for burnout in the church is doing things God has never gifted us to do. But if you do what God has gifted you to do, and in the midst of it, draw on the strength he has for you, you may be physically tired but your spirit will be on fire. So we've got to find our gifts and use them. And as we resolve to do that, there'll be power from God for us. And if that isn't your experience, learn not to rely on yourself, but to rely on God and find him in the midst of your serving and draw strength from him because his strength is enough for us. Now drawing all of this together, we did it seven points in... Probably less than half an hour. Well done. Good going. Uh, he says to himself. And a self-congratulately kind of, I surprised myself there. And surprised all of you, I'm sure. Drawing all of this together, because we're not quite done yet. If Peter was here this morning as a guest speaker, here's what I think he'd say to us. Wrapping all of this up, I, I think he'd say, be holy. Be holy. Be holy in a culture that is obsessed with things that are trivial. Flee from immorality because God has got so much more for you. There's freedom, there's peace, there's joy, there's grace in abundance for you. So get away from the worship of mere idols and instead enjoy worshipping the one true God. And in a world that seems to have lost sight of what's important, won't you live in light of the return of Jesus? In a world that is so incredibly destructive and negative, rather than destroy and pull down, won't you build the church? Won't you be positive about the things of God? Won't you persevere in prayer, 
Join Jesus, don't oppose him. Build with love, build with hospitality, build with the gifts he's given you. And through all of this, be willing to pay the price to see it happen. See, ultimately, I think what our culture actually wants, even if they say they hate it, is a church that exists to glorify God. We desperately need a church that is holy and courageous, a church that lives for eternity, a church that glories in the possibilities for Jesus' bride and is committed to praying this into being.